This episode of Classic Retro Memories is dedicated to the memory of Jay Briscoe. Fans, this is Seth, aka Zandrax. We got the newest edition of Classic Wrestling Memories here. We're going to talk one of the most unique careers and lives, really, of all time here. A, a man who's had a career in wrestling, but a huge career also outside of wrestling. And I guess the best way I can introduce the career of Gene LaBelle is you might have heard of. Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee. Well, we're going to talk about one of the men that helped train both those men. And fortunately, I don't have to do it alone. Joining me once again from the nice, soft, padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. I want to apologize to our listeners. Classic Wrestling Memories, we're, we're thankful for all the all the likes and follows we've got on Facebook and all the interaction with, with the people that listen and it seems to be of all the podcasts that, that we do do, it does seem to be the one that has the the, the most spot. Would you agree with that, Seth? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Now, modern fans may only recognize the name LaBelle because it's what Brian Danielson calls his move, the LaBelle lock. It was the S lock in WWE. But that is the LaBelle in LaBelle lock. And once we yeah. talk more about the career of this man, like like I said, we, we, talk, we mentioned he... Met, trained Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee. You could also say that he's actually done some of the things that Chuck Norris jokes might have been made about. What he does is do push-ups. But when he does a push-up, he moves the world. He doesn't push up. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's we'll pull back the cover a little bit. Me and Seth, these have tools that really synced up, and we can record just about any time. Well, I've had some changes at work, and and Seth has some changes at work, and I've had some health issues. And, Seth's had some health issues within his family, not, not himself. Mm-hmm. And and also, I, I've told you all before, I've, I've kind of gone back to training guys to wrestle. So I'm going to a lot of shows on weekends. And it has made recording very difficult, mostly on my part. And so we are not able to record as often as we used to. And that has made a big delay in a lot of our recordings. And so I know a lot of people have been asking for a couple of months now, when's the next one coming out? And this is the long delay. And so I want to apologize to, to any of our, our listeners, regular listeners, why is it taking so long? You could solely put the blame on me. Don't blame Seth. It's not that we don't want to do it. It's just we're finding it very, very difficult to, to sync up. Seth's been sacrificing sleep right now to, <laughs> to, to, just to record this. So uh, if you want to send him a shout out, hey, we appreciate it, Seth. <laughs> he deserves it. And I, I think part of the charm of our show, of this particular show, and we've always talked about it, is you get the unique perspective of a, of a lifelong fan and staff that is very knowledgeable about the business from a fan's perspective. And at the same time, tempering that with a guy who actually was in the business. Mm-hmm. And that gives you a, a very unique perspective. I don't think a lot of other podcasts do. And as they do, they're usually guys that are much bigger names than I had. Right. But it's our own little unique spin. And, 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 I couldn't do it without seven. And he said he couldn't do it without me. And I'm, I'm, I'm humbled that he says that because I couldn't do it without him. So yeah. it was yeah, that. I, I will shut up now and we'll get going. <laughs> so Judo Gene LaBelle, the godfather of grappling, probably half a dozen other names he went under. I think he's one of those guys you could look up badass in the dictionary and there'd be a picture of Gene LaBelle. But um, rightfully so. Right. You, just some of the accolades he had for individual 
things that, that weren't necessarily wrestling matches because you're not really going to hear much about great wrestling matches that he had. He never main evented pay-per-views or anything like that. Obviously, well, most of his career was before pay-per-views was invented, but he did a lot of stuff before it was known. You could say he did MMA before MMA was a thing. He refereed the match between, uh, what was it? Was it Andre the Giant? Oh, and, uh, no, he... he- he refed them. He was the ref in the, in the Ali uh, uh, Anoki. Okay, that's wrestling history, big time right there. Right, absolutely, and did a lot of stunt work, a lot of stunt coordination, and such. So we'll talk a bit about his wrestling career because there's certainly enough to talk about there. But we are also going to talk about his impressive career outside of the wrestling world. So we'll go back to the beginning on October 9th of 1932. So it's at about eight years before. World War II broke out. He was born in L.A., and both of his parents were actually promoters. His mother promoted uh, sports in general, and I believe his father was a was a boxing or a wrestling promoter. And both. He, he he was trained back in the day. They used to call it well. They call it I think catch wrestling now, but I think the full name that is traditionally known for is catch is catch can, which right is basically, I don't know what I would call it, anything goes, but it wasn't just certain types of holds. You essentially used the holds or the lockups, anything you could to take down your opponent. Because back in these early days of wrestling, when I say early days, I, I, I guess early days isn't the right word because wrestling goes well, back well, hundreds earlier, of years. Earlier day. Yeah, yeah. earlier day. Or, or, this is... This is it's around the same time we're talking about. If you go back and listen to our podcast, episode about the gold dust tree, mm-hmm. when wrestling was transitioning from being completely a shoot and often very boring, mm-hmm. these long drawn out matches to where it was becoming, you know, as we talk about that episode, what they called wham, bam, Western style wrestling, where you're having angles and it's a work, it's a work in the sense that they predetermined finishes and stuff right. or storylines. But at this time, there is still a lot more reality and, and guys could take care of themselves. It isn't like today was flips and flops. It, right. it was, yes, right. but I'm going to finish your back then was like a body slam. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was the big spot work mood where the holes and stuff in between were all legitimate. And in the, in these days, the fa- fall was almost literally a fall. We still hear it today when they say scheduled for one fall or two out of three falls or whatever. Right. A fall, where that term got the name from, is it started out in days where guys would grapple standing up, and if you left your feet, that was the fall and you lost. That that was how you beat an opponent, was you had to take an opponent off his feet. There was no pins. Right, right. So that's kind of where catch wrestling was you did you had to take your opponent off its feet off his feet by shouldn't say any, by any means necessary I guess this is back before the days mm-hmm. of foreign objects and all and all that stuff right. but he was trained by Ed Strangler Lewis in catch wrestling and this is also where he started getting judo black belt and judo and we do talk about Ed Strangler Lewis in the Gold Dust Trio episode that was what our, he was our of third it. or fourth episode I think. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. he was a member of. And, and w- would you like to tell the, the the listeners how old was he when when he first started working out with Ed Strangler Lewis? 
He was the ripe old age of seven, so barely. Can you imagine school. that? I mean, again, obviously, he had contact because of his parents being promoters. Heck, his mom owned the Olympic Auditorium, which they torn down, but was the longtime venue for wrestling, the NWA territory, Los Angeles. We'll get more about that later, but can you imagine being taught how to be a professional wrestler at seven years old by legitimately one of the one of the biggest badasses in, in, in the history of, of professional wrestling? That just blows my mind. You right. know? Could you imagine somebody just letting their child in the same room as somebody named Strangler? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For those that haven't heard that episode, we do encourage you to go back and listen. Ben Strangler mm -hmm. Lewis is the same guy that trained Nita. Mm -hmm. Do I need to say any more? Right. Uh, right about the same time, this too. Is yeah. Like, yeah, so I, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure if nothing else speaks to the badass of Ed the Strangler Lewis, I think that probably, probably does it the most, right? Right, right. I know our listeners have, have made out of scene, but they've heard of it. They've heard of me, right. and they know he was, he was a badass, though. Right. Absolutely. So he grew up in a family of promoters. His brother, Mike, was actually a promoter as well. And while he was in his early 20s in physical prime, he did win judo championships and mm -hmm. right about the time after he won his judo championship, that's really about the time he started getting into wrestling because Mike LaBelle right. was promoting the L.A. territory, which I think at the time was still called WWA. There's been a lot. There's been several promotions right. that used the initials WWA, but the L.A. one was probably the one that was the most notorious because at that time, from the 50s up until, what would it be, I mean, the 60s or 70s, it, its mm -hmm. world title was considered to be one of the major world titles alongside the the NWA and I believe the yeah NWA it was the West title. West Coast World Title match. right yeah so you could say the NWA was probably mainly in the the, the southeast or east area the AWA was the the Midwest the Midwest and then the WWA was considered the world title for the Western territories do I have that right yeah they were technically an NWA territory. But yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The world champion, whether it was Lethez or Pat O'Connor or whatever, he did go into the L.A. territory promoting. And this, you remember, L.A., the Los Angeles territory, that's the same territory that spawned Gorgeous George, where he got his notoriety, which, I mean, Gorgeous George is probably the first mainstream star that people knew outside of wrestling. And then this off territory also had John Tolos, the Golden Greek, and Crafty Freddie Blassie when he was a wrestler, not a manager. And... He was a very, very well-known star. I mean, this guy was dating like Hollywood actresses and was often in like the trade publications for acting. I mean, like the variety and stuff out at like the Hollywood places with these women. So this was a, a pretty big, I believe as much as we hear about all the times that Bruno sold out Madison Square Garden and all that stuff. I think for a long time, many of the, of the, of the gate records and, 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 and sell out records in a row was for the Olympic Auditorium, and it was John Tolos and Freddie Blast. Mm -hmm. It was a big territory. Make no but this is where he's cutting his teeth. And then at the same time he's cutting his teeth in pro wrestling, like you brought up, he's he's also learning judo and becoming a black belt in judo. Now our, our listeners that was a lot know I myself am a black belt and judo. For those that don't know, it's not like karate. It isn't strikes. It is wrestling. It's just a martial art. It's all right. about throws and arm bars and chokeholds take down the pins there is no yeah take down there is no leg leg lock that's a jujitsu which is what judo comes from 
You know what's created by a man named Dr. Jigoro Kano. It was Professor Fitzgerald's Cage in Japan in the late 1800s. And he created it as kind of a, what he envisioned as a, as a physical fitness system for school kids and the whole country of Japan. And also because of that, it's always had a competitive sport aspect. That's why it was the first martial art that was in the Olympic. And he, in fact, Dr. Kano was on the International Olympic Committee. He died in 1912 on a boat back to Japan from France, going to an International Olympic Committee meeting. And the school he started in Tokyo called the Kodokan. And Gene was like 18 years old when he went and was, this was not, I've been to the Kodokan when I went to Japan. And it's not unusual for non-Japanese judokas, judoka is the term that we use for a judo practitioner, to go now. But back then, it wasn't very common for non-Japanese to go to Kodokan. And here he is going to 18 and, and studying there. And, and, and very quickly becomes a highly regarded international competitor in judo. And America, it, only the last... 15, 20 years since America got to where they've been fairly competitive on an international level in judo. But he was competitive from the jump. And one of the most famous stories of, of his early days of competing in judo was he had gone to a tournament there in Japan, an international tournament from Los Angeles. And I think it was like the early to mid 1950s. And I've, I think I've brought this up before on another podcast. Judo geese are very heavy because they're meant right. to be helpful in throwing them. And they're all, traditionally, they were all white. The reason behind that is the, the, the roots of Judo Jiu-Jitsu, which has its roots in the samurai, in the Bushido of Japan. And the traditional color of mourning in, in Japan is white, not black. And so samurai would wear white clothes underneath their armor before they went into battle as a signal that I, I'm prepared to die on the battlefield. And so Dr. Kano took that as well. He had... For years, judo was just like amateur wrestling, where you would wear a di one competitor would wear a different color uh, sash hanging from his belt on his gi or on like a little ankle bracelet. So the judges and the ref could delineate the two competitors. It's only been since I think like the early 90s, like 92 with the first Olympic, where they just decided for television purposes and needs to just kind of help the popularity. Every competitor should have two gi, the blue gi and a white gi. And, and depending on what your draw is, you wear one or the other. So it's been mm -hmm. now you can easily tell. But long before that, when they were still doing the colored sashes, a unique thing happened with Gene LaBelle. He had gone to this international tournament and during the course of the week, he did some laundry and he by accident lost, I believe it was a, a shirt, a dress shirt that was red with his white gi. And it, of course, dyed it pink and he didn't have any other gi. So he goes in the tournament and shows up wearing a pink gi. And this is like the kid, his pink was. This is long before Brad Hart made pink, pink a tough guy's color, right? <laughs> right. The, the only and, time a guy might be around pink is if he's driving a pink Cadillac. Right, right. But Elvis could get away with it wearing a pink coat. Little Richard could get away with it, but but mm -hmm. but but not a guy that did a judo contest, right? Right. So as he's like, I, I can't. There was, there was talk of trying to disqualify him because he, he's not following the traditional rules. And they didn't like him anyway because he was American. But they, they conceded when they, when he explained and they let him wear this pink guinea and he won a tournament. Mm -hmm. He won for his weight class and I'm in pretty convincing fashion. <laughs> I could just imagine to kind of make the wrestling reference, a, if you could somehow make Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan calling these matches, Gorilla may be saying, Hey, he's wearing a pink gi. 
Bobby's, Bobby says, well, you go tell them to change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so he wins the tournament. He gives me fashion. They don't like him he's an American. And he's wearing a pink gi, but they respected him because he was mm-hmm. so dominant. And that kind of became his calling card in the defensive judo world. That they kind of let him, and you know, him understanding showmanship because of the family background and pro wrestling, he understood it made him different. And so mm-hmm. he fully accepted it. And that became a, a known thing with, with Judo Gene LaBelle was when he would compete in Judo, even in the days before the, the blue and white truth color, different geese, he was wearing a pink gi. And this just accepted. And that was just what he did. Right. And it, it's kind of unique. So a little bit of pro wrestling, showbiz, radical dazzle, and it shoots like, like, like Judo. Also around the same time, if you want to talk his martial arts background, Seth brought up earlier, he's often considered as the, a participant in the very first televised MMA match. And that came in 1963, December of 1963. Jim Beck, who was a boxer and a writer, had, and this is pretty true a lot in the 50s and early 60s, that a lot of Americans doubted the legitimacy of, of Asian martial arts. And so this Jim Beck guy had made an open challenge to any Asian martial artist that met a boxer could beat him in a, in a one-on-one fight. Uh, Queen, and Marcus the Queensberry type boxer. So Judo G. LaBelle steps up, says, okay, I'll pick down. And he quickly finds out that it is kind of a, a work. Beck, who was not that good of a boxer, he's more of a rider, was a gonna fighter. He's gonna have this guy named Milo Savage fight him. And it was $1,000 if LaBelle could win, which $1,000 was a lot of money in 1963. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Ned. The people make a long story short. There was a lot of machinations between both sides about what was going to be the rules and losing weight and gaining weight. But it was, it was finally settled. And that the rules were basically that G. DeBell could not use kicks, which if you know anything about judo, we don't use no strikes anyway. to grappling yeah. art. Right. right. One of the ways I describe judo to people who might not know it is uh-huh. karate is more about kicks and strikes. Jiu-jitsu is more right. about holds, like you said. Judo is more like somebody t- takes a swing at you and you take his arm and you and you take him down. Right. Not not a submission I mean, thing, but just you, you, you take him down. Judo is, is is one of what they call coat wrestling in the martial arts world. There are several art forms that is 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 essentially wrestling, but you wear a heavy coat or gi top. Sambo, mm-hmm. which is a Russian, jiu-jitsu is another one. Uh, where the gi is very important. You have to have a coat on. And judo is one of those styles, probably the most, probably the most famous of that, of those styles. But the fight happens on December 2nd in Salt Lake City, Utah. And Ed Parker, who was a very famous karate promoter and, and karate, karateka, which is like judica, is the, is the, the term for a karate practitioner. He, he was one of the early guys that helped Chuck Norris and, and, and Bruce Lee early in their careers and stuff. He, he was one of the promoters and pushed Gene to do it. He was one of the ones that he would convince Gene to take up the fight. And Gene LaBelle always had this feeling that, that he was getting sandbagged by the Milo Savage camp. They actually knew more than they said. But one of the confessions, he says that he wouldn't kick. Well, the confession that Savage had to make is that he would wear a guitar. Well, Gene LaBelle thinks that's going to be a judo gi. No, it's not. He wears a, he would, he would show up with a karate gi. And like we were talking about, judo wears a very, very heavy, thick top coat and their gi so you can use it for throws and leverage. A karate gi is very, very light. Yeah. So he's already at a disadvantage. And he, he also said he thinks that, that Savage knew more about grappling than he was leading on. And his ability 
in early in the rounds of the fight to actually defend against these throw attempts by Gila Bell. Gila's like thinking, yeah, he, he studies some judo. He studies some amateur wrestler or something. But eventually, I think it was in the fifth round, he was able to throw Savage with a judo throw. And it looked like he was going to lock in an arm bar, but he wound up floating over and putting him in the rear naked choke and choking him out. And he won the fight, won the thousand dollars. The crowd was kind of mad in Salt Lake because he was kind of portrayed by Jim Beck as the heel in this. But something that the crowd getting ready to turn some of Savage's camp and some of Gene LaBelle's camp immediately ran to the ring and started shaking hands. And, and I, I can't remember who the ref was, but he kind of gave the okay to Gene LaBelle and the crowd kind of settled down. Yeah, because it, it was to, to kind of describe the situation, I think that Savage was kind of he was kind of a hometown hero. So that this is like yes, beating was. the top home team uh, in in their home ground. Yeah, it's like bringing back hard in Calgary. It's like beating Rick Flair in Charlotte. So, so the crowd calmed down. They accepted Jim LaBelle, and that is Jilly considered December second, nineteen sixty three, as the first televised MMA fight. Because it is it, judoka and wrestler against the boxer. That that's to me is the, is, is the textbook definition of an MMA fight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's Gene LaBelle's, a lot of what's going on in his 20s and 30s as he's working towards really helping out his brother, Mike, run the, L, the NWA, called NWA Hollywood, which was the Los Angeles territory. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to go now into it's kind of what, what went along in those days. And that territory ran, Mike and him ran it from, I think, 62 or 63. So around the time of this fight with Milo Savage, until that, that territory went under, in 82 it was one of the first end of the territory to go under right before Vince starts really burying territories and going national right so it was one of the first to go under but as you heard me talking about earlier in his day it was a huge territory mm-hmm. so i you're going to talk a little about i don't know Steph, about the, the the his his time with mike and and in nwa hollywood so yeah his family was promoting the nwa hollywood territory and Gene really was wrestling in that more to help out the family. I think most of his involvement would have been behind the scenes. He was kind of a, a locker room cop, you might say. What, what, what I forget what they would call it, but uh, he, he was the guy that would make sure the locker room didn't get out of hand. And he also would work under a mask as the hangman because since he was known as such a badass in real life, even at this young age, I think he was smart enough to know that, well, if he's losing undercard matches, that would hurt his image. Well, yeah, we already talked about him going, going to Japan and winning the international or judo tournaments and beating Milo Savage, a boxer, and everybody. So yeah, he was pretty well known as a badass right. already. You know? Right, ex- exactly. So he would put on this mask to hide his identity, and he would help put over the talent that would then be pushed into the, the main event. So right around this time, this is kind of getting into one of the Chuck Norris stories, stories I mentioned at the top of the show. Right around this time, the champion was Fred Blassie, like you were talking about, and how huge of a star Freddie Blassie was. So Bearcat Wright beat Freddie Blassie for that WWE title. Again, kind of the, the equivalent of the world title for the Western territories. The, the LaBelles wanted to bring in Eduardo, uh, how do you say, Car- Carpentier? I, I keep missing Carpentier. Yeah. yeah, he's the French guy. He he basically was a, a, a hot flyer for the time who helped to bring Andre over here. Right. So that's that's right. Eduardo Carpentier. Yeah, he, he was credited and when, when, as... Was, the, ever an, 
Well, yeah, never an NWA champion, but always a guy considered an in the hunt well, in that era. D- depending on who you talk to, I think there were some territories that recognized him as a as an NWA champion, but. Well, yeah, it's disputed by I think the historians as a whole. I don't think you're you're, you're going to find him officially listed as an NWA champion. But he's the star of the '50s and '60s of the early '70s, and he's legitimately in the same breath with Pat O'Connor, Vern Gagne, Fez, mm-hmm. Buddy Rogers. So he's that level of star in the eyes. Right, and but he's a guy kind of like Gene, not exactly the biggest guy. He he was five ten. Now he was yeah. I think he was over two hundred. But yeah, he's about two fifteen. Yeah, but Bearcat Wright legitimately is like six 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 seven, about two sixty two seventy. So just yeah, big dude all around. Like he's about the same size as Arnie Land, probably. Probably yeah, yeah. Now I don't know if that's why he refused to lose to Carpentier, but just gives you the idea of the size of of Bearcat. So. Blassie, who was friends with Bearcat in real life, he assures that, okay, well, Bearcat will lose to me. I'll win the title back. And then three days later, he'll drop it to Carpentier. Uh, at least that's what was agreed on. But that's when planned. we get to <laughs> match time, Bearcat Wright actually shot on Blassie, his supposed friend, and legitimately knocked him out in the ring. It's a perfect example of the term going into business for yourself. You know, he mm-hmm. he refused to cooperate in the ring, knocked out his friend because he didn't want, I don't know if it's because he didn't want the title going to Carpentier or whatever, but for whatever his reasons were, he went into business for himself, knocked out Blasting, and retained the title. So fast forward three days and Bearcat, 6'7", 270, however big he was, he's standing in the ring waiting for Carpentier to come out, assuming he's going to knock out Carpentier as well. And the masked hangman, 5'10 or so, 170 pounds, starts making his way to the ring. And obviously, Bearcat's smart enough to know this, know that that's Gene LaBelle under the mask. So this 6'7", 270-pound guy tur- turns tail, hightails it out of there, hops into his Cadillac and drives down. Gets himself killed out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, that, I, that, that story is just, is just amazing to me that... And I, I guess he didn't even get credit. So he where New Mexico, whatever. No, Arizona, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was two states away. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love pro wrestling. Kind, 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 of, <laughs> kind of steal the words from Charlie Daniels. They didn't slow down at all. It's almost Arizona. Instead, that's of right. There's <laughs> stories like that. I think the great example of why me and Seth love pro wrestling. Right, right. Because where but in pro wrestling would something like that happen? Mm. Or, or a guy who's a legit badass wearing a mask and losing undercard matches. Now, to give you an idea of like, what a policeman was, what, what he was in that territory, like the wild Samoa Dafa and Sigo and then Fuji and Professor Tuichinaka were policemen in Vince Sr.'s locker room. Harley Race was his own policeman in mm-hmm. Kansas City. Right. The Briscoes were policemen here in Carolinas. Wasn't Schultz one as well for AWA or... Yes, Dave Schultz is one for AWA. As, as funny as it may sound, do you remember in, in Beyond the Mat, Dennis Stamp? Yes. The guy who didn't want to come I'm to not the, booked. the show. Yeah, yeah. He was actually the policeman for George Jr. and Terry in their territory. Because Dennis Stamp was a legit badass. That's why Terry wanted him to referee the his, what was what? His yes, like yes. 13th retirement yeah, match? Was, <laughs> yeah, him and Brett. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is the thing about Bo Wrestling, and, and, and Gene LaBelle's a prime example of it. Policemen, I mean, obviously, Officer Seeker's huge guys. Harley, 
Harley didn't have the greatest body, but nobody messed with Harley. But mm-hmm. the Briscoes, yeah, but Jerry's not a big guy. A lot of times, guys that are, are police, especially back then, were not the biggest guys in the world, but they were legitimate, like Gene LaBelle, like Jerry Briscoe, had some form of legitimate amateur grappling background. They could hurt you. Mm-hmm. They'd tie you in knots that would take months and months and months to get out of. You hear terms often, and we use them often a lot, and I probably need to give a better explanation. There's a difference between a shooter and a hooker. A shooter is a guy who can shoot. He's a guy who can legitimately take care of him. And shooters come in many, many forms. Shooters can be like Harley Race, where Harley's not a uh, doesn't have any knowledge of holes, but he can just beat you up. He's just a tough guy. Hands hard fire hydrant, had a left hand that knocked you out in a skinny minute. And then you could have guys that were shooters that were like Jerry Briscoe, like Jim LaBelle, that knew holds and, and how to take you down and, and control you on the mat and legitimately put you in submission hole. That, that's a shooter. A hooker was a guy who was really, really, really skilled in the old catches, catch, can cut like we're talking about. This is the Ed Strangle Lewis, the Lutezes, even the Briscoes to a certain level. And the way it was always explained to me was by my mentor and guests we've had on the show before, which was great. He's in about as many halls of fame as, as Gina Bella. <laughs> Quite honestly. And the way she always explained it to me is a shooter is going to, is like, is they're going to shoot you with a gun, bang, you're, it's, you're dead. Mm-hmm. A hooker, for any of our listeners that are fishermen, will understand this analogy that she's a gift. It's just like fishing. Once you take the hook in, the more you fight, the worse it is for you. Mm-hmm. And that's what a hooker is. And a hooker is a guy that will legitimately put you in a legitimate wrestling hole. And the more you fight it, the more it, it's going to mess you up. And I actually have some books that Susan taught me that she learned from Danny Hodge, a, another great hooker and shooter in the interest mm-hmm. business. One of the toughest men of all time. Yes. I, I've always said Power Pound, probably the, the toughest man ever in wrestling. He right out there with Gene LaBelle. If you look up badass in the dictionary, there's probably a picture of Danny Hodge. See, but I use them in matches. I just don't hook them. I tell the, I tell the, the, the guy I'm working, don't fight it and you won't get hurt. But if you fight it, it's going to mess you up. And, and so I'll put those holes on it. Look cool. And if you don't resist and I don't crank down, it's a work. But the second you start trying to resist, or I decide I want to crank down, I'm going to break your leg. I'm going to break your arm. And I'm pretty sure Gene LaBelle forgot more of those than I've ever known. You know what? Because right. <laughs> Gene LaBelle was a shooter and a hooker. And so he, he was a policeman with those skills. And like we said, was not that impressive uh, as far as size goes. But when a man decides to bearcat right, not only leaves, but, but goes three states, two or three states away <laughs> and never comes back. I think that the, the bold statement is the, how tough he was. Right. And his time in Los Angeles, in NWA Hollywood, as a policeman and as a booker and a co-promoter, he came across a lot of really, really big stars that our listeners will know. And he helped train them to teach some of them some hooking and shooting skills. Well, here's some of those guys that you can list. I mean, you've got, you've got the list there. Who are some of the, the wrestlers that came through Los Angeles that he worked with? Well, one of the ones early on he was just breaking in was a very young man by the name of Nick Bockwinkle, if you can imagine yep. that. Nick was born in Los Angeles. His dad was a big star there. Right, right. But And uh, we all know Nick's a guy that can take care of himself. <laughs> right, right. But Roddy Piper learned a lot from oh, yeah. him. Late, later in life, Ronda Rousey. Mm-hmm. So, and, and he worked with all, about- all, all the Guerreros, except for Eddie, I think. Mm-hmm. Think about and that. These guys are already taught how to be a badass because their dad, Gory Guerrero, was a legit badass and, and a bit of a shooter himself in El Paso. 
and then they're learning more from him. Yeah, the Guerreros yeah. are probably not one that I want to mess with. Yeah, and and, <laughs> and even outside of wrestling, we already mentioned Chuck Norris and uh, Bruce Lee, and just to kind of mm-hmm. maybe give a non wrestling examples like what you're talking about with with Shooter and Hooker. Chuck Norris is a good example of a shooter because he was mainly known for strikes, kicks and stuff. Yeah, he'd beat you up. Right. He'd, he'd just mess you up, yeah. Yeah, a hooker would be somebody more in line with like a Steven Seagal with the, with the Aikido. And then there were guys like Bruce Lee who could do both. And that, that's yep. what made people like Bruce Lee especially dangerous because you want to kick, you want to strike, he can strike. You want to hook, he can hook. Yeah, if you want to, right. And, and, you know, talking about Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee, this is a, the, why a man had such a, like you said, unique and fascinating life. Because he's based out of Los Angeles, he's wrestling, he's he's kind of retired from, from competitive judo, but he's still doing some, he's definitely teaching. He also gets involved in the movie industry and television industry as a stuntman and a stunt coordinator. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how he meet Bruce Lee and how he meet, because he worked on the Green Hornet. How he met Chuck Norris. And Bruce Lee, for those that don't know, I think so, I've mentioned it before on other episodes, Bruce Lee is legitimately one of my heroes. He is a guy that I, I look to. I mean, you hear the term, I don't, Bruce Lee is one of my, and not just because he was a great martial artist. He was just a great man. He was a good father, a good husband. He was a deep thinker, an educated man, a very Renaissance man. He understood the need for correct diet and, and working out. And yes, his style was a striking style. You could know. And of course, his base style was what he learned when he was a kid, which was Wing Chun, traditional Kung Fu Chinese boxing. But if you read his writings on the martial arts, he always believed that there was a need to understand and know grappling. And Bruce was always soaking up anything he could and learning anything he could from other martial artists. And one of those that he, that happened to be Gene LaBelle. He knew Gene LaBelle was a legit grappler and so they they spent a lot of time sparred and talking in between shots about grappling and about techniques taken down submission hold so they i i, I he wasn't a teacher of wrestling like in the traditional sense but he definitely taught bruce himself if that makes any sense and and it chuck norse very very similar situation chuck's a guy who yes he's a striker five-time world middleweight full contact karate champion but he also understood the need to, to know some grappling and much so is what we were to talk about before was recorded. Chuck's 82. 20 something years ago in the 60s, when he sees the rise of popularity of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and the success of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and grappling in, in the UFC and MMA, he goes and starts studying. He's got the black belt. So this is the guy his whole life is needing true martial arts, continuing mm-hmm. to, to develop skills no matter what he's. And some of the earliest, some of the earliest that we've seen of that was his same thing that Bruce did, Chuck did with, with Gene LaBelle. Just, you know, in between shots, working out, he'd show him some holds, stuff like that. And there's a lot of, of, of famous action stars that he worked with, that he was in their movies. And we're talking like, like, like legitimate leading men that are known as tough guys. He was, he, he worked with Elvis. Yeah, I think it was in three or four Elvis movies. He played a, he played a guy that Elvis knocked out. He, he was in James Cagney. Kurt Douglas, Sylvester Stallone, Mickey Rooney. These are guys that are legitimate Hollywood leading men. Over and a time multiple with, decades. With, yes. And over, and at a time in Hollywood when being a leading man meant being perceived as rough and tough and, and could win a fight. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he's working with them. 
He's working with wrestlers. Ronda Rousey he brought up. He knew Ronda's mother because Ronda's mother was a judoka just like Ronda. He knew Ronda from the time Ronda was born. He trained Ronda. I don't think he was an elite instructor, but he was definitely one of her advisors and coaches in the yeah, Olympics. Yeah, mentor of sorts, you might say. Yeah, exactly. And Ronda often fought in the pink gi as an homage to Gene. So he fought with Benny Benedict Yurquez, who's one of the greatest kickboxers of all time, and his brother. Gene LaBelle worked with every big name in Hollywood stunt work. He worked with every big name in the martial arts world. He trained many, many top flight MMA fighters like Tyrell Parisian and Manny Gambian and other guys that you've heard of in the early days of the UFC. Just, just an amazing guy. I, there are two controversies in his life. I think we, we probably have to talk about them. Yeah, you kind of can't mention his career without talking about him, I think. Yeah, so the, I'll actually talk about the more recent one first and then go back to the older one. Mm -hmm. But that is a Steven Seagal controversy. He was the stunt coordinator on Under Siege, which in my opinion is Steven Seagal's best move. Mostly because Tommy Lee Jones is just chewing up scenery and great as a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Because this is before Tommy Lee Jones is Oscar for Fugitive. Right. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, he's just, him just being this completely evil bad guy over the top and and Gary Busey being, well, Gary Busey, right? Mm -hmm. But, a lot of people instead, they were there, they had seen the fight. There's this claim that Chagall saying because of his years of Aikido. And let me say this, caveat, before I go on to it. Crazy as Steven Chagall is, and as much as he let himself go, and who Lord knows what he's doing with the sheriff stuff now. He legitimately was, well, Steven Chagall legitimately was a bad guy, okay? He legitimately was the first non-Japanese white guy from America to go over to Japan and get a black belt from one of the top Aikidos, there's like four or five Aikido dojos over there, like the best in the world, and become an instructor there. That's all legit. Steven Seagal is a legit badass. Make no bones about that. He worked hard and earned what he got in Aikido. And as a martial artist myself, I'm obviously not at LaBelle or Seagal's level. My opinion, Aikido has some techniques that can be used, but I don't think that it's a be-all in them. I think it's very limited. That's mm-hmm. just my opinion. So I'll get up both of them. But there's a story that Seagal claims he can't, that because of his years of Aikido, which is a combination of striking and joint manipulation, judo, Aikido is all based on a 180 degree circle. It's about taking your opponent's momentum and using it against them. Yeah. And going back to what I was saying about judo, where he throws a punch and you use it as a takedown, Aikido is more you grab the arm and you make him say, ow. Right. That's why when you see a Steven Seagal movie and his fight scene, he'll start facing one direction, and when the fight's over, he's facing the other direction. That's very Aikido. You've done mm-hmm. that 180. You've taken their momentum and use it against them. And you do some of that in judo, but judo is also about just using leverage and weight, a lot of basic physics, like a fulcrum and stuff. He claims, though, Seagal claims that he can't be choked out. He's immune to being choked out because of his years of Aikido training. And Gene Lavelle like, oh, really? So depending on who you listen to, you, the two most credible accounts are one comes from Stephen Lambert, who was a, very much a Hollywood legend in the stunt world. And at the time was worked with Steven Seagal with like his personal bodyguard claims that it was just a, a disagreement and that, that, that G LaBelle said, okay, let me put you in this hold. And, and he does, and, and he locks it in this chokehold and 
Chagall sidestepped and then legitimately forearms LaBelle and like the balls, like between the legs and, and lifts them up off the ground. He hits them so hard. And the LaBelle immediately gets up and like, like throws him with some kind of juke on, put, put Chagall on his back and then helps him up. And they both laugh it off. Mm-hmm. He says that's what happened. And they were only four people. And that, and that's hard for me to believe because Seagal, both Seagal and the bell have been very different in their, in what happened. Seagal is like, talks about how LaBelle's a liar and he's full of crap and he, you can't trust anything he says. And LaBelle's kind of tried to avoid the subject. A lot of other people that were involved in the movie said they saw it and that LaBelle kind of got pissed, backed on the, on the show cold and that Seagal relieved himself on himself. The joke holds so tight. I think knowing most things in Hollywood, truth probably somewhere in the middle, wouldn't you say, Seth? Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things that it, it's common where each side is going to tell the story that makes them look the best. That, that just kind of right. seems to be a human nature type thing. But I do think at the end of the day, I think it's not even Seagal speaks. He did get put in a chokehold by Bill Gino Bell. Now, whether he completely choked him out, he made it just himself, I don't know. But I think it's pretty well accepted. No matter what the end was, LaBelle did get the best of it. Do you, do you not agree that? Right. Yeah, I think I think, that's, I think that's fair. So that's one controversy. And it's kind of funny because, I mean, on top of Seagal, he is a big man. Mm-hmm. How big is Seagal? He's about what, six, four, six, five, about, about 260. Yeah, I think he's over six feet. He's, he's got big shoulders, too. Yeah, and here's this little LaBelle guy choking him out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is kind of the whole point of judo. Dr. Kondo was on a big, just like Gene LaBelle. And his whole thing was to show that if you use technique properly, a, a littler man can get the better of a big man. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of makes sense. The other, even more controversial, is you have to go back to 1976, where Gene LaBelle was convicted of murder. Or well, accessory not, not murder, it was accessory. Accessory too, right. He was originally charged with that, but then it was dropped and then was convicted. And then that was later overturned. But in 76, he was in a business transaction or was at some kind of business with, with a pornographer named Jack Ginsburg. And they were being investigated by a private investigator named, I believe, Mike Bell, what's his name? Or no, sorry, Mike Hall. And Robert, Robert, Robert Hall. Robert Hall, Robert Hall, sorry, not Mike, Robert. And Ginsburg asks LaBelle to take him to his home there in the Hollywood Hills. And he does. And Ginsburg killed him. Yes. Now, Ginsburg's always claimed it was self-defense, but he does murder him. And then LaBelle drove him away. My opinion, one, I don't think the murder was premeditated. Two, I don't think LaBelle took him over there with the dent of him. That right. makes sense. Right. And, and apparently, this, this was about the time the, of the Muhammad Ali Anoki fight. So the, this right. is somebody right. who he he was still well known at this point. right and so we can speculate all we want but obviously my take was also the take of the uh <laughs> the, the california court of appeals because they, they they dropped the charge they dropped the conviction they overturned it mm-hmm. so you can't talk about gene labelle without talking about that and for those who said well, why was he hanging out with pornographer this is 1976 pornography wasn't nearly as sleazy or in the public eye as it is now it was seen as a legitimate form of adult entertainment it was yeah it was kind of a stepchild to the hollywood world but it still existed this is around the time when the x rating was still mainstream and had didn't have the sleaze association that it has now. right this is this is the same era as like deep throat which is probably the most critically acclaimed adult film deep throat was 
played in like normal movie theaters. It's a lot like Boogie Nights. You know, if you've seen the Boogie Nights movie where the, the Jack Horner character that Burt Reynolds plays, mm-hmm. he sees himself as a legitimate filmmaker and an tour. And, and adult films, there was character development. There was plot line. There was set design. And the things, all the other things that you think of with a regular movie just happen to have sex scenes and full frontal nudity. Whereas the adult filmmaker now is just ludicrous setups for one sex scene after another sex scene. There is no plot. But it's strictly for just, just the sex and it didn't have that back then. So I'm not that surprised that a guy that had a legitimate background in Hollywood, like Gene LaBelle would have rubbed shoulders and elbows with a guy who was pornography. It wasn't that unusual back then, what I'm saying. Right. And it, to make the story even more sensational, I guess, if you can be, if you can be, the victim, Hall, while you said was a private investigator, he had series of tapes. I think that was what the argument was over, like that he had taped Ginsburg. They even say that he had tapes going all the way back that was blackmailed stuff on Nixon and Nixon was like the governor of California. So this guy, I don't know. He, he, he strikes me as he probably was a little bit of a, of a shady character. Not saying the man deserved to die, not saying the man deserved to be murdered, but right. of the three individuals, I think Dean LaBelle is probably the least lead the other three. Don't you agree? <laughs> right, right. And I believe LaBelle's side of it, just for the record, as far as driving the man, he thought that Ginsburg was just going to beat the guy up, but not kill him. Right. Like I said, I think he got a little more heat. Mm-hmm. So it, you can't avoid that in the Stevens Connell controversy because they are a part of his very unique life. He, he, we, we, we would be not doing our best and giving a tribute to Gene LaBelle if we didn't talk about that. Right. But I'd, I'd rather talk about the more happy things. The guy, Al DeFermo, one of the most successful and largest territories during the territory days in the WA Hollywood. Uh, for me, as a judoka, a lot of my my respect for him not only comes from wrestling, but from his judo. Like I said, he trained the Budokan at like 18, uh, the Kodokan at like 18 years old. Yeah, he was an, the American National Judo Champion from AAU in 54 and 55. Yeah, I competed in AAU when I was competing. Mm-hmm. And I placed twice. I was second in the state of South Carolina and placed fourth in the Southeast. And this guy won the national back then. That's pretty impressive. On an outside of wrestling and outside of competitive sports, he had quite a sizable resume for stunts and stunt coordinators, and he's credited as an actor in hundreds of movies, usually just bit parts, like you were talking about getting knocked out by Elvis or something. But his IMDb is like over like 200 movies. Absolutely, yeah. I will link his IMDb page to the show notes, classicwrestlingmemories.com, and you'll you'll see just how big his body work is. And a lot of different stuff. It wasn't just action movies. He was actually in an episode of The Munsters, which I know we we covered for our Nostalgia Trip show a couple of years back. There was an episode where Herman Munster became a pro wrestler. And Gene is one of the guys that appears in that as another wrestler. So if you can imagine... Well, it makes sense. Yeah. It was filmed in Hollywood. It, mm-hmm. That's the local territory, right? Exactly. So, of course... To summarize that episode, the promoters are trying to get Herman to act mean and be tough. And of course, anybody who knows the Munsters knows that Herman wouldn't hurt a fly. You know, even though he's huge and looks like Frankenstein, he's like the kindest guy in the world. Yeah, when he's when he's sweeping, he wouldn't crush the roach. He'd pick it up and carry it outside. Right, right. But yeah, a whole bunch of other movies, TV shows, and such. So yeah, just just looking at his IMDb page alone, his hundreds of entries. So definitely a very diverse, very accomplished life in many different categories. And don't think though that this because we're talking about his work as a stuntman and a judoka. 
and then he was a policeman and a promoter. He also was a successful wrestler. What are some mm-hmm. of his accolades he got in wrestling, Jeff? In professional wrestling, he was the NWA Hawaii heavyweight champion, the NWA Central States heavyweight champion. He was America's tag team champion in NWA Hollywood. And then he was the beat the champ television champ, which I, I think that's one of those where the, what it was like 10 minute time. Right. Well, they're really bored with a TV title. And I want to say he had a match with Zabisco around that time. This would have been the 70s. This would have been mid to late 70s. Yeah. Or, uh, right the whole gimmick with those, uh, I'm, and I'm not familiar with Hollywood's version. I know that the, the, the gimmick they would do here in Carolina is in Georgia. And it's, I wish it's a great gimmick in wrestling. The beat the champ, I mean, you had like 10 minutes to beat the champion, but the match would have a 20 minute time limit. So if you beat him in the first 10 minutes, you won the title. But if you didn't beat him, if you beat him in like 15 minutes, you won the match, but you didn't win the title. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that was a great way for a heel champion to lose to a babyface, but not lose his title. Yeah, because the heel the heel could just stall. If the stall and stall, and then, then the babyface is a big finisher at about 12 minutes, and he wins the match, but the crowd's pissed because he didn't win the title. Yeah. And one other title that he had was the NWA North American Heavyweight Championship, which goes back to the Funks in the Amarillo Territory. Yeah, yeah. And he's in the NWA Hall of Fame. He is in the the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, he Cauliflower Alley won Club. a couple of well, I mean, I think a couple of accolades. You caught. The guy is like we said, he's legitimately elected. I think Dean LaBelle, It's kind of like you like how you like to say about Jerry Lawler, Seth. Mm-hmm. When you're talking the history of professional wrestling, Gene LaBelle is not the first name. He's not the 20th name that comes up and people that you think you need to talk about to cover the history of pro wrestling, which is what we do on this show. But you cannot talk about the history of wrestling as a whole in totality without mentioning Gene LaBelle. I think, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. For me personally, yeah, as a judoka, what he did, he really was the first American to be successful at the port of judo. So as me and judoka, he has no respect on that. As a wrestler, what he did in wrestling, he has my respect. I'm by no means a shooter or a hooker. I can take care of myself. I've had to get a little rough with some guys in the ring that didn't want to cooperate. But I definitely have a list of guys that I by no means ever want to get mad at me and have to get hit in the ring. And a lot of the suspects on that list are people you would expect. Luthez, Ming, Harley Race, Dr. Destiny Williams, Bruce Brody, Gina Bell's on that list. And he's probably mm-hmm. the top four or five of oh, guys I just do not. I would probably be like Bearcat Wright. Oh, he's coming here to shoot on me. Bye. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go free stage. What? That's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. how much respect I have for Gina Bell. And I, and I think I, one I, other I, thing we can add going to his work in entertainment, even if you don't know what he looked like, if you don't associate the face with the name, if you look at martial arts magazine covers and such, you may have seen him on the cover of one of those martial oh, art uh, oh, like magazines. Oh, like Black Belt. Yeah, like yeah, Black in Belt. In the 80s or, or the 90s, inside, you know, this, inside yeah. Yeah, this really old dude that's just cranking on the knee or the arm of somebody. Yeah, that, that visual of the old guy just just mopping the floor with the young guy. He made, he posed for a lot of those pictures. So of course he we here at Classic Wrestling Memories send our condolences to his family. But he was what when he died a few months uh, ago? Eighty nine. Uh, I think he would have been ninety this year. So he lived a very good life. And I I saw him do an interview just a couple of years ago. He was very full of vigor and life. So he had an amazing life. He had a long life. He had an interesting life. So once again we I. 
I speak personally and here at class does a million. He sent a lot of condolences to his, his family and his many, many students and friends that were close to him. And I personally thank him for what he contributed to the world of judo and the world of MMA and the world of pro wrestling. They're my favorite thing in the whole world. And he was a major part of all three. Absolutely. So that's going to bring us to the end of this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. If you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. You can find us on Facebook at Classic Wrestling Memories as well. And on Twitter, we have, we're have we part of our sister podcast, uh, the Wrestling Brethren podcast. That can be found at TWBP Show on Twitter. And you can respond not just on social media, but you can actually respond on the website itself, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. We're also on the, you can also find us at the podcatcher of your choosing. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, pretty much you name it. Just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories. You'll be able to find us. Give us a follow. Give us a review. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. I always say that I value feedback of all kinds, especially when it's genuine. And Train, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. You can find me on just about every kind of, every social media platform with that handle. Just look it up. Facebook, Twitter. I don't have an Instagram account yet, even though we do have one now. We do have one for Geekville, yeah. We have uh, one for yeah. Geekville Radio. For Geekville Radio, but just do a search. If you see a uh, guy with scrubs on the left center and carrying a teddy bear, just me. You can always do that. And, and just want to give an insight. We are going to try to do a little bit more recording, and I'm going to try to work on my schedule a little bit more. Unfortunately, the next classic that's in memories will be another tribute for another star we lost a few months ago, right around the same time as Tito Bell. I think it's the absolute legend, Antonio Inok. Yeah. So that's just an insight of what Jenna looks for. And quite frankly, that might be one we might have to divide up into multiple volumes. Yeah, because, his, his, yeah. his career is probably one of the three or four full episodes. And we can cover a lot of Inoki by covering other topics like Ricky Dozen and the birth of Japanese wrestling. And we could do a whole episode on the collision or Korea. There's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. You'll see when we get to that episode. That, that's probably, be ready. That might be a multi-part. <laughs> right. So I'm going to shut down the power here in the studios. We'll talk to you folks again a lot sooner than it took this episode to come out. I think we can promise that. But this is Geek yes. Class Wrestling Memories. We'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.